everybody. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana, and every week I cover a new infamous gangster in a true crime-like format. I started noticing that other people can never pronounce my name, and I think it's because my dumbass never thought to, like, actually introduce myself in these episodes. So now you know how to pronounce it, and I'll start actually introducing myself at the beginning of these episodes like I've been supposed to do all this time. I'm just like, oh, hey, thanks for coming. Welcome to my episode. Let's hang out. I, I My name is Dana Trippiana, and I cover gangsters in a true crime-like format, okay? So, welcome to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I love and appreciate every single one of you, and thank you so much for coming back and hanging out every week. Today's intro is gonna be a little long, so I'm really sorry if you're one of those that, like, wants me to just jump into the story, but... I have to talk about this. If you're one of those that are just here for the content, you can go ahead and fast forward. You can get through the whole beginning that I'm going to be kind of like blabbing and you can go to my intro and then from then on out, I'll just be going over the gangster. So yeah, if you don't want to stick around for this, you can go to my intro, but I hope you stick around because I'd like to talk. So first of all, I just want to say that it's been a really long time since I posted. It has been 11 days since I posted when I'm recording this, so I know by the time it actually goes on YouTube, it's going to be a lot longer. So, yeah, I just wanted to say I'm sorry about that. I've had a lot of stuff going on. First of all, I want to talk about the remedy to try to get that better. I'm trying to remedy the time that it takes for me to post an episode and the amount of time that's in between my episodes, as I mentioned in my last video, it has a lot to do with the fact that it takes me a really long time to get ready for these episodes. Like, I'm like, oh my god, I have to look perfect, I have to curl my hair, I have to do eyelashes, I have to go crazy on my makeup, everything has to be perfect. Oh my god, it has to take two, three, four hours. And like, yeah, that's fine if I'm recording an episode a month. But it's just not sustainable for me working the amount of hours that I work and doing these videos and doing the... Re I can't. I can't do it. So I have to figure out a way to make these videos easier. And the way that I figure I'm going to make it easier is that you guys are going to start seeing me more what I look like in the rest of my life. I'm really hoping it doesn't like scare everybody off because I know that when this video comes back to me to edit it, I'm going to want to throw myself into the trash with the other trash pandas. Like, I know I'm going to rip myself apart. I'm going to look horrible. I know that. But I'm really hoping that it's a case of me being harder on myself than everybody else's. And it's not really that bad that everybody's going to be like, oh my god, this girl is so ugly. I'm not watching this. I'm clicking off. This is horrible. Like, I guess we'll see. It could be that. It really could. I, you know, but I'm hoping that... It's a case of, like, I want to be perfect and everybody else doesn't really care if I am. Okay, so on to the second order of business. As you guys know, if you watch my channel a lot, I just got finished up with an entire round of IVF. If you don't know what that is, it is an entire month of a round of fertility treatments that get you pregnant. You have to put, like, four shots a day in your stomach. You're taking a million medications. You have a surgery. It's, it's hard. It's... It's a very hard thing to do, it's painful, it's emotional, but it's supposed to be worth it in the end. You're supposed to get pregnant, so it's all supposed to be okay. Well, I just went through an entire round of IVF, 
and it didn't work out. It did, let me explain. I've been very upfront with my doctors from the very beginning of this that I only plan to implant female fertilized eggs. Because when they're doing IVF, they they make the eggs that they're going to implant, and then they implant it in you, and you get pregnant. That's the whole process. But they make the baby in the little Petri dish. And I made it very clear from the very beginning, I'm only implanting females. Has to be a girl. And no, it's not because, like, I'm a psychopath and, you know, oh, I just, I want to dress my little girl up in pretty dresses. No, that's not what it is. It's because my family has a pretty significant medical history and... It has a lot higher incidence with males than females. And I want to do everything that I can to curb that since I'm forced into the position of having to do these treatments anyways. Obviously, if I was able to just go out and get pregnant on my own, I would have to deal with it if it happened, but I don't. So I'm not going to create a situation where a child could be sick. I'm not going to do that. So... It just is what it is. Well, I did the whole treatment. Um, When I got the surgery, they got 17 eggs. 12 were mature. One made it through night one, so there was 11. Then what they do is they wait five days, and at the end of the five days, however many make it, go off to get genetic testing. So at the end of the five days, I had eight that made it. Okay, cool. So you got eight. That's great. You know, like, great numbers. So happy for you. There's no way this isn't going to work out. This is like, you have the highest chances. Everything's going to work out. Great. Eight go off for genetic testing. Out of those eight, they give me a call and they're so happy. You have five healthy eggs. Oh my God, this is amazing. I wish our patients had prognosis is as good as this. Like you have, you have five healthy eggs. This is great. The problem came when every single one of those five eggs were male. And even the nurse was like, yo, this never happens. Like this never happens. You always get males and females. She's like, you know, I can't swear that it's not going to happen again, but it doesn't happen a lot. And it's pretty rare when people do IVF that they have such a strong preference of gender. And again, it's a medical thing. Boys have a lot higher chance of this happening than girls. So I just won't do it. I won't do it to myself. I won't do it to a child. So at the end of the day, The problem is, is that every single one of those five eggs were male, can't use any of them, so I literally have to start over and do it all over again and do the shots all over again and do the million medications and do the new surgery and do an entire new round of IVF. It's a really huge blow because right now I'm down about $12,000 and that's with insurance covering a pretty significant portion of it. I'm gonna have to do all of it again and... Plus, it's really hard. It's hard to be in that emotional of a state because you got to think hormones are out of control for that amount of time. And that's a that's a long amount of time. You know, you think of girls that PMS, they do it for a day or two. You're you have an entire month that you're just at full throttle. You have enough HCG in you to get the entire town pregnant. And and it's painful. You keep getting these shots over and over. And it's just it's a lot. And after going through all that, it was really hard to hear that I did all of that for nothing. But at this point, it is what it is. We're picking up the pieces, we're moving on, and we're going to start our next round in a few weeks. As soon as my cycle gets to the point that I can start taking the medication again, I'm going to start taking the medication again. And 
we start from scratch. On top of that, I have been sick as a freaking dog. I have no idea what I have. I got tested for COVID. I didn't have that, but whatever I had, like I had a fever. I, I couldn't breathe. I, everything, it was just as bad as COVID. Like, honestly, man, life has really just been kicking my ass. It really has. Like, I've been going through the thick of it for a while. And I'm still going through the thick of it, and I probably will be for a long time. So I really hope that you guys hang in there with me, and I promise to keep coming back and making videos even when life is beating the absolute piss out of me. If you promise to keep coming back, even if I look like a trash panda like I do right now, okay? Deal? Alright, give me a second. Carlo was born November 1st, 1899 in Falelunga, Sicily. His father, Giuseppe De Carlo, and his mother, Vincenza Grasso De Carlo, were married on December 11th, 1897. They had one son, Francesco De Carlo, on September 20th, 1898, before welcoming Joseph into the world. They would later welcome Rosario De Carlo on February 6th, 1902 and Salvatore De Carlo on April 2nd, 1904, In all of this is going on in Vallelunga. In August of 1905, Giuseppe boarded the SS Lombardia by himself to head to America to set up for a life for his family. The family, the wife and the four children, had remained in Italy while Giuseppe had set up shop in America. I've talked about this a lot. It happens on a regular basis. The family stays in Italy and just kind of like lives their life. The father goes to America, does the dirty work, you know, sleeps on the friend's couch while he gets a house and gets a career set up and gets everything put into place and then sends for the wife and the kids to come. And then once the wife and kids get there, the wife is already figured out. Everything's already good. Each of them have, you know, honestly, personally, I'd rather go to America and get everything set up than have to watch these kids for all this time and then take them on a ship across the world. But <laughs> either way, both both aspects, no matter which way you turn, that's a hard freaking thing to do. Giuseppe goes to America. He sets up. He makes an entire life. He sends back. And he says, hey, I have a life set up and I'm ready for you and the kids to come and join me in America. Giuseppe was actually able to make the trip because he was sponsored by Pascal Enya, a close family friend who also just so happened to be a mafia leader. So I'm not saying that Giuseppe is involved in the mafia or the Black Hand or any kind of mafia affairs. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Pascale, the one that's sponsoring him, he is. Giuseppe formed a long-lasting friendship with Isidoro Crocevera in Palmero. They hadn't talked for like a really long time because Crocevera was in jail for a long time. 
He had been arrested with Giuseppe Gia Lombardo and Giuseppe De Prima in 1903 for circulating counterfeit currency in Yonkers, New York. So they were already in America and they were already running crimes. So he's already running around in crime. He's in jail and, you know, they're friends, but they haven't seen each other in a long time. De Prima had some beef with Ignazio Lupo and Giuseppe Morello, and it got his cousin, Benedito Madonia, killed around the same time that he was arrested. If you are someone that's been on my channel a lot, you know those names, Ignazio Lupo and Giuseppe Morello. They are two of New York's top mafia leaders. So these are big names we're hearing right now. So the fact that we're talking about these these big names that everybody knows, there's there's big names coming up. <laughs> Once he got his whole life set up in Brooklyn, again, Giuseppe sent back. He said, hey, I'm ready. Come on. I've been here for a year. Come get on a ship. Get to America, woman. I'm ready to see you and my kids. So they board the SS Indiana in Naples, and they arrive in America only 18 days later. Giuseppe DiCarlo and Isidoro Crocevera, they reunite after Crocevera gets out of jail. Crocevera connects Giuseppe with New York Morello Mafia. So again, Giuseppe Morello that I had just mentioned, he gets him hooked up, and now Giuseppe DiCarlo is involved in the Morello Mafia. Giuseppe Morello is the original boss of what we know now as the Genovese family. Giuseppe formed a partnership with Salvatore Manzella, a merchant who owned the Manzella grocery store on Elizabeth Street. Before long, the grocery store is targeted for extortion payments by the Morello lieutenant, Ignazio Lupo. Even though they're hooked up, Ignazio Lupo turns around and he says like, hey, you know, you guys are friends and everything, but you are going to be paying me some money right now because you are operating. You're not operating in crime, but you are operating, you are making money, and you owe me money so that I don't kill you, pretty much. The location that they're at in New York is very Italian. Everybody that lives there is Italian, but barely anybody in the area is from the same area that DiCarlo is from. If I've taught you anything in all of these videos, it's that the area that you're from in Italy is very, very important. It is the most important thing about you. I don't know why. <laughs> I've talked about it so many times. Like, these families go to war because they're from two towns away from each other. It is absolute insanity. They're both from Italy. They could be from 10 miles apart, but they will go to war because they are 10 miles apart and that makes them different. So the most important thing about you is where in Italy you're from. So they're in this area in New York and it's filled with people that immigrated from Italy, but not very many people from their part of Italy. So they're feeling very left out, you know, like they don't feel like a part of the community. Nobody there is somebody that they feel they can connect with. They have very little contact with other people because, I mean, later on you'll see the Castello Marese War and that is kind of what tries to turn the tide, but at this time, Italians don't talk to people that aren't Italians from the same neighborhood that they're from. If you are not somebody that they grew up seeing on a regular basis, you will not have a conversation with them. So it's a very lonely thing to be in this foreign country and know one person in an entire country. You know, it's very isolating. You have very little contact with anybody. It just gets lonely. They catch wind that there's an area in western New York and that entire area is filled with people that are from their neighborhood. 
all the people in this area in West New York are from Valle Domo or Valle Lunga colonies. And they're like, oh, bet there is our people, men. Like, they are from the same area that we're from, which means that we like them. The idea of reuniting with their own people and being able to just have a conversation with somebody that they see on the street, like pure mwah, chef's kiss, magical. They will give everything up to make that happen. They're mulling over the idea. They're thinking about it. They're going to go, but it's expensive to move. They're trying to decide if they're going to do it. They're asking around about the neighborhood. And when Giuseppe starts to inquire about the area, he's told that if he comes to this area to live, he will be given command of an entire regional mafia in the area. There's an open position. Giuseppe is friends of a lot of people. He has his own history. And if he moves to this neighborhood, we will, we will give you a mafia pre-made. It's already made. There's a whole crime syndicate already set up. You will walk in the boss. All you gotta do is go. So this is like the greatest thing. You could just tell this man that world peace has been achieved, you know, like, sun, moon, and stars, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen. And they're like, okay, yeah, let's get the hell out of Dodge. Kids, get your shit packed. We're going. Especially because of the fact that while they're here, Giuseppe's being harassed by Ignazio Lupo. Like, he's literally paying money to not die. You don't have any people from your area. You don't have any people that you can have a conversation with. On top of that, you have a mafia waiting for you in this other area. You're going to be the boss as soon as you walk in. And in the area that you're in, you're getting extorted. Like, screw that. I'm out. They pick up and they head straight for Buffalo, New York. Giuseppe DiCarlo moves his family to Buffalo in 1908. They get a cute little apartment on West Eagle Street. They didn't really like the apartment, though. And they pretty quickly move into another apartment at 120 Front Avenue. He immediately becomes the leader of the Sicilian underworld there. So, like, they were telling the truth. No one was trying to lie to him or, like, bait him into getting there. He walks there and he is the boss of the Sicilian underworld. Giuseppe works once again with Pietro Manzella, the one that he was working at the grocery store with, and they form an importing company together. The company, which they opened with Carmelo Cugino this time, was named Buffalo Italian Importing Company. It was located at 161 Court Street in Buffalo. Giuseppe DiCarlo and Angelo Palmieri started to form more and more of a friendship, and they even started going into business together. Palmieri even took extra steps and married DiCarlo's wife's cousin. And when they fell onto financially hard times, he and his wife moved into the upstairs apartment at the DiCarlo home. So, like, these guys are tight, tight. He worked as DiCarlo's partner in a Dante Place saloon, and he acquires a pretty violent reputation. So, like, he's working for Giuseppe. Giuseppe's the boss, and he's out there, and he's like, bro, I got no problem killing for you, okay? I just want you to know that. I don't care. I will take anyone down for you. I got you, okay? And the rest of the town hears this. They're like, okay, this man is not playing. He's serious. He's he's mean. Don't screw that guy over, okay? If you value your life, just be straight with him. Like, don't start no shit. Sadly, pretty soon, Palmieri's wife died, who is DiCarlo's wife's sister, and she died. And after that happened, Palmieri moved from Buffalo to Niagara Falls because he was just, like, heartbroken. It, it ripped his chest out when she died, so he moved to Niagara Falls. 
After living in their apartment for two years, the family moves into 197 Front Avenue so that they can have a full house. Like, Front Avenue, they're, like, a block away, if that. If they had to move an entire block, it's a lot. But they want to have a full house, they want a driveway, they want a backyard, and so that's why they move into this new address. In 1910, the Buffalo Italian Importing Company wasn't really doing that well and they ended up having to declare bankruptcy. The three owners are accused of fraudulent business failure in bankruptcy court, and none of them go to jail for it, but, like, they're arrested, and the the DA is threatening them, I'm gonna have you arrested, I'm gonna have you spend the rest of your life in jail. They probably didn't bring it to trial, or they were found not guilty, but there was a lot of drama there. Like, these guys just wanted to declare bankruptcy, and Uh, There probably was some, you know, fraudulent business failure going on, but it didn't end up putting him in jail, so could have been worse. Joseph DiCarlo leaves high school after 37 days of being in Buffalo. This boy had been tapped to be in the mafia since the day that his family landed in America. Like, he was going to be in the mafia, period. Honestly, probably way before that. He probably was born... And told, like, hey, you're going to be in the mafia. Get used to it. The way that history would have you believe it, Giuseppe DiCarlo got involved with the mafia on his trip to America. But I don't believe that one bit, because the person that sponsored him to become an American is a mafia leader. So realistically, like, he did a pretty good job at hiding his mob ties back in Italy, but there was mob ties back in Italy. Plus, you're going to tell me, that this man met someone on a boat to America. He came to America for a year, was involved in the mafia, and then somebody just handed him control of an entire family because he worked for a year in a grocery store? No. Mm Mm-mm. I don't believe you. You can't tell me. You can't. You can't make me believe that. This man was knee-deep in mafia affairs back in Italy, okay? You you can't convince me otherwise. So the point is, Joseph was never going to be anything except in the mafia. That was his lot in life. That was it. He was going to be in the mafia. So what's the point of going to school? School doesn't do anything to advance their career. It's not going to build up their reputation. They're not going to make money from it. They could be out on the streets making money, building their reputation, getting known for things, in the time they're sitting in the classroom. So Joseph's like, yeah, screw this, I'm out. I'm I'm leaving, I quit. Joseph's older brother, Francesco, caught something that had been going around at a very alarming rate. Think the coronavirus of that era, while none of the medical interventions existed that we have now. He caught tuberculosis, which was virtually a death sentence. He was diagnosed in January of 1917, and he passed away in March of 1918. It was a very long and very tough battle, but the fact that he made it as long as he did shows you that he had a huge will to survive, and he had a lot of strength, because tuberculosis, like, that shit took your body over. So the fact that he fought for over a year, that's that's some dedication right there, man, because I don't think I have that kind of dedication. I think I have just enough depression to, like, I would never, like, go out of my way and do anything, (laughs) but if I just accidentally ended up on the edge of a building, you know, like, 
I'm not going to be the one to fight that hard, you know? It just is what it is, okay? My depression cured my anxiety. I used to have anxiety. Bad, bad anxiety. It was like, oh my god, you know? Like, I'm so scared. There's ghosts. Somebody's going to jump out and unalive me. It's so scary. And my depression got so bad that I just got to a point in my head where I was like, okay, threaten me with a good time. Pop out and unalive me. Go ahead. What What are you going to do? What do I have to be scared of? You're gonna unalive me? Ooh, scare me with a good time. Like, yeah, so he was not like that. Joseph's brother, Francesco, he fought, he wanted to live, he just succumbed. In the mid-19th century, tuberculosis was called consumption, and if you have ever watched the show Vampire Diaries, you would know that that is how Damien and Stefan's mommy died. She does come back, you know, she was a vampire, it was a whole bleh thing. TB has a history that dates all the way back to 2300 years ago in China, and it was only discovered in 1882 to be contagious, not hereditary. So people thought that you were born with tuberculosis, like, you just lived your entire life, and then one day, all of a sudden, you just, the tuberculosis came out in you, and you just died. So they found out about a disease that had been around for over a thousand years, like, oh shit, you're not born with this, you catch it. At the close of the 1800s, 40% of the working class's deaths in the city were from tuberculosis, and that's because people never took any measurements to not spread it because they didn't know that it was spreadable. When coronavirus happened, it was like, it was quick. You know, it was, okay, throw a mask on, don't go near other people, six feet. Like, there was measures put into place and people knew what to do to stop the spread. And we still have that shit. There's still new diagnoses every day. But go back then, they don't know to wear masks. They don't know to give six feet. If somebody's coughing right there, they have no issue standing nose to nose with this person because they don't know they're going to catch something. They think that person was born with that. Oh, bad lot in life. You were just born with tuberculosis. They have no idea. So this thing spreads like wildfire and all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of people are dying. It mainly traveled in cities due to the cramped living conditions and people lived close together. There wasn't a lot of money, not a lot of sanitation. Once it was discovered that it was contagious and not hereditary, sanatoriums started to pop up all over the place. The idea of proper hygiene and ample fresh air were pushed to the public and you could see signs like there was one sign that said the city that fails to provide public playgrounds may be forced to provide tuberculosis sanatoria. Cases of TB sharply decreased in the 1920s and even further in the 1930s. Tuberculosis is a disease of the lungs which is a lot like coronavirus. Some of the symptoms include fatigue, night sweats, and general wasting away of the victim. If you have consumption, chances are you're coughing up white phlegm and a lot of times blood. At the time, there was no treatment. Some doctor would recommend bleeding and purging, but for the most part, they just tell you like, okay, go home and get some rest. At least you knew you weren't alone. At the turn of the century, about 450 people between the ages of 15 and 44 would die of consumption per day. Not a week, not a month, 450 people per day were dying of consumption. It really blows my mind sometimes that the human race made it as far as it did. 
Like, we have 8 billion people on this planet right now. How the hell did we do that? The universe has thrown some shit at us, man. You can say what you will about humans, and I hate humans. I really do. I think they're the most parasitic bacteria that exists, okay? Humans are the worst. But they're resilient motherfuckers. I gotta say, you, you cannot say that humans don't want to be here. Humans want to exist, okay? Joseph's mother, Vincenza, had been fighting cancer. It's always a super important thing to have a strong sense of community and support around you when you have, like, a hard fight like that. You know, like, cancer and there's no chemo back then. I can pretty much guarantee that. And Vincenza is very much so still in the grips of grief from losing her oldest son. That probably had a huge part to play in the fact that while she was undergoing surgery for the cancer on July 3rd, 1919, she did not pull through. Mafia members from all over the country, they send huge, elaborate floral arrangements. There's a huge amount of people that show up to pay their respects, outpouring from the mafia across the entire country. This is a really tough two years for this entire family. At 19 years old, Joseph has lost his brother and his mother. Losing a parent at any age is impossibly hard. But at such a young age, like, it's twice as hard. And on top of that, you're still grieving your brother. Like, I can't imagine what this poor boy is going through. The 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act had banned alcohol sales and opened up a black market of opportunities. The amendment was ratified on January 6th, 1920, so Prohibition hits a year after his mother dies. I have talked endlessly on this channel about Prohibition and what it meant for the American Mafia. I've told you guys a thousand times that I am fully convinced that Prohibition actually created the Mafia. It allowed it to go from, like, a bunch of gangs that are spread out and all over the place and just, you know, individual gangs to an organized company-like organization making millions upon millions of dollars a year. Prohibition went into effect when Joseph was 21 years old, so he's just old enough that he can participate in the gigantic amount of income that's about to come from Prohibition, but he's still young enough that this is the time in his life where he's growing. It's, it's going to do a lot to help cement him into the person that he's going to become. And he's going to grow a lot during this period. Vincenzo Denari and Peter Bonventre, two associates of Palmieri, narrowly avoided convictions on several alcohol-related charges. Now, a lot of time has gone by at this point, and Giuseppe DiCarlo's health is failing, and he starts to step away from his legitimate businesses. He's starting to pull back because he's getting sick. He sells his ownership in the Venice restaurant to... Thomas J.B. Dyke. Giuseppe helped his son, Joseph, open up an auto rest roadhouse in Williamsville. So, like, it's a little restaurant, little, you know, stop off on the side of the road when you're driving through town restaurant for his son that he helps him set up. For relaxation, Giuseppe DiCarlo attends boxing matches, and he becomes a fan of lightweight contender Rocky Kansas. The 1922 murders of Dominic and Salvatore Scaroni leave Perry in control of the Calabrian bootlegging network in Ontario. On July 9, 1922, Giuseppe DiCarlo passed away of acute pulmonary edema at the age of 48 years old. 
He had been sick for a long time. It wasn't a surprise to anybody that he died. He had diabetes, he had some heart problems, he had kidney problems, pulling out of all of his legitimate businesses that he had a part in recently. So like he knew it was coming, the family knew it was coming, but that couldn't have made it any easier for his surviving family to lose their 48-year-old father. His funeral is one of Buffalo's largest funerals to date. So this means that... At the age of 23 years old, Joseph DiCarlo is an orphan. He had lost his mother, his brother, and his father in the span of a five-year period. Momentarily, Joseph was considered as the successor to his father. The leadership of the Buffalo Mafia, it's open, you know? Who's gonna take it? But the rest of the leadership of the Mafia, they determined that Joseph was just too immature to take over this position right now. He couldn't. Gangster and family friend Angelo Palmieri returned to Buffalo from Niagara Falls. He's the one that was married to the sister in the beginning, and he was living upstairs from their house. Well, when Giuseppe passes away, Palmieri returns to Buffalo, and he lives with the DiCarlo children, and he's raising these DiCarlo children. Even though they're all, like, older, they can take care of themselves, but they've lost a lot. So Palmieri steps in and just kind of, like, rallies the troops. Palmieri briefly serves as the caretaker of the mafia organization and the DiCarlo children. Angelo Palmieri becomes the leader in the Niagara Falls underworld, and a link between the Calabrian and the Sicilian criminal societies kind of takes over, so a little bit of peace is starting to happen when Palmieri returns. Calabrian and Sicilian bootlegging operations, they start to get big. They start to make a lot of money. And what happens when crime starts to make a lot of money? It starts catching the attention of prohibition agents. Now, I am going to paint you a picture here of what I believe happens when I'm piecing together things that I'm finding here and there and just taking a whole bunch of different facts and putting them together. So Joseph DiCarlo and Isadora Crocevera, they go to meet up with two men, Vincent and Anthony Vaccaro. And they're going, pretty much they want to talk about money. They're going to exchange some kind of illegal liquor transaction. No idea what it is. Honestly, not really important. They're going to meet up. They're going to hash some stuff out. Something goes wrong in these talks and it ends up devolving into a shootout. In this shootout, Crocevera is shot, and so is Vincent Vaccaro. Crocevera does not make it, but Vincent does pull through. Joseph DiCarlo was charged with first-degree assault in the shooting of Vincent Vaccaro, and Anthony Vaccaro was charged with Crocevera's murder. However, none of the witnesses would testify, so neither one of them ended up going to jail or anything. The only thing I don't like about this situation is how history kind of like glosses over it and it leaves people really confused. It summarizes the situation as a shooting fight where Crocevera is killed and Joseph is involved. Here's a direct quote from an article. Like, I'm literally going to read it directly from an article. A bootlegger's quarrel with the Vaccaro brothers takes the life of Giuseppe DiCarlo friend Crocevera and results in charges against Joseph DiCarlo. Like, what would you guys take out of that? It makes it seem like Joseph killed Crocevera, when that is very much so not true. Joseph did not hurt Crocevera. In Sicily's Castella Mare del Golfo, Stefano Magadino is born and raised amid mafia conflicts. I mean, look at what's going on. 
In my video about Joseph Bonanno, I spoke pretty extensively about Magadino. However, let's review. Since Stefano will also be the subject of an episode I'm going to do in a few weeks, I'm not going to go into too much detail here. It's going to be very, you know, shallow, but I'm just going to go over some things you need to know. Despite being a resident of Brooklyn, he decided to join Antonio D'Andrea-led Chicago Mafia. Magadino relocates him and his family to Philadelphia, and pretty much he is traveling all over the place. He just can't settle on one place. He's, he's here, he's there, he's in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York. One of the suspects in the 1921 Good Killers case is Magadino. He ends up leaving Brooklyn, but he does not get arrested, but he is kind of like chased out by this Good Killers case. Magadino ends up accepting the role as the new boss of the family. He and Joseph DiCarlo are nice to each other. They say hellos, they say goodbyes, but you can tell they really hate the shit out of each other. Joseph wanted the role of boss of the family. It was the other leaders of the mafia that determined that he was too immature, but he wanted to be the boss. He was given the position of underboss, but it was clear he was the most powerful opponent to Stefano, the undertaker, Magadino. And Magadino only kept DiCarlo on as underboss pretty much to keep the peace with the DiCarlo faction and his supporters because there's a pretty decent number of guys that are behind DiCarlo and they would go to war and support him in his bid for boss. And nobody wants a war. So Magadino was like, listen, I'll be the boss, you be the underboss, we don't gotta like each other, we just gotta work together, you do you, I'll do me, chill. At the same time, DiCarlo, he feels that he was robbed when he was passed up for this position, and it's never gonna be a light relationship, it's a very tense relationship between him and Magadino. Magadino ends up making a deal with another local crime ring, and he joins forces in alcohol smuggling operations with Canadian Rocco Perry. Now, without his father's protection, Joseph DiCarlo is frequently a target of the police because Joseph doesn't take the time to do the things that Giuseppe did. Giuseppe paid off the local police force. Giuseppe would, you know, he'd be walking and he would stop and he would ask the cops about their kids and just make friends with people so that he wasn't being arrested all the time. Joseph didn't want to do that. And they would leave Joseph alone because they didn't want to piss off Giuseppe. But now that Giuseppe's gone and Joseph is making it pretty clear, he's not going to walk in his dad's footsteps and he's not going to do those things. He's not going to pay the police. He's not going to pretend to like them. And what that means is that he has a target on his back. Minnie Clark the manager of the auto rest that his father had helped him open, and Joseph, they become friends. Agents from the Prohibition Department frequently raided the auto rest, and they're just doing everything they can to try to mess with Joseph by messing with his business and with his friends. In the early 1920s, DiCarlo and a few of his friends and associates were the targets of a regional drug trade enforcement action. The Harrison Act made drug trafficking illegal in 1914, but enforcement, they really didn't enforce it. It wasn't consistent until about 1919. So DiCarlo and his friends, they're one of the first to fall under this new set of rules and laws. William J. Donovan is appointed U.S. Attorney for the Western District of New York. William Donovan actually has a pretty crazy background himself. He was a soldier during his time in the Army. He was a lawyer. He was a diplomat. 
He was an intelligence officer, and he is credited as being the father of the CIA. He built up the agency during World War II. He ran for a U.S. Senate seat and lost, so he spent his time lobbying Congress on legislation such as the National Security Act of 1947. Douglas Waller, the man who would later write a biography for Donovan, said that the passing of the legislation was a vindication of Donovan's vision. While he was serving in the military, he is the only person to ever have received all four of the U.S.'s highest awards. The Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Distinguished Service Medal, not trying to brag, but like I totally have that medal, and the National Security Medal. He also received a Silver Star and a Purple Heart, as well as a shit ton of other medals for his heroism during fighting. While Donovan seemed to be a shoo-in for leading the CIA, which was formed after passing the legislation that he had just lobbied for, the president at the time, Harry Truman, thought that it would be best to install Admiral Roscoe Hillencopper. Honestly, Donovan seemed fine with it. He really just wanted to be, like, running missions... He didn't want to be in, like, an office. He wanted to be, like, out in the world running missions, and that's what he did. He headed for Europe, and he shared contacts and information from behind the Iron Curtain, which really, really, really pissed off President Truman. In the next election, he lobbied hard for Eisenhower, who had become a pretty close friend of his, and he helped him win, and Eisenhower became president. When he won, he hoped that Eisenhower would name him head of the CIA, but he didn't. He named Alan Dules, brother of new Secretary of State John Foster Dules, as the leader of the CIA. Eisenhower offered Donovan the position as the ambassador of France, but Donovan said no. He was like, no. He did end up becoming the ambassador of Thailand, which put him in a position where, unlike the ambassador of France role, he really wouldn't have to do anything with Secretary Dulles because, like, he got passed up for Dulles' brother and there's some tension there, so he'll be an ambassador, but not for France, because if he's the ambassador of France, he's going to have to work with this Dulles dude that he does not like, but he'll do it for Thailand so that he doesn't have to see this guy. Obviously, all of this happens way after he fights to arrest DiCarlo, but it's just interesting that stuff that he did with his life, like, this guy... It's crazy. Charges against Johnny Dyke and others are the result of a drug raid in April of 1922. Donovan declares that he is getting close to the drug ringleaders towards the ends of 1922. Sam Todaro's cousin, Busy Joe Patiucci, was into all facets of mafia life. He was a heroin and opium dealer in Buffalo, New York. His mother, Natalia, was Todaro's aunt. I talked a lot about Todaro in my Big Joe Leonardo episode. I'll link it below, so if you're interested in the story of Todaro and you want to, like, know a lot about him, you can go listen. That's a pretty interesting story, too. In July of 1923, there was a drug raid that saw 20 people arrested, including Patiucci. They were all arrested for their role in a scheme to traffic drugs, and they must have actually been doing it because the DA was able to get a conviction on Patiucci and the four other defendants. So, like... If they're looking at them for it, and they're really not having anything, like, more than likely, if you're able to get a conviction, if you're able to fight it in court and get a conviction, you probably did it. More than likely. Patiucci did not like the prison sentence that he got, which was a whole two years in prison. He could not do that. That was just incomprehensible. Way too long. Two years? Mm-mm. 
So, he turned state's evidence, and Patty Uchi was officially a rat. When Patty Uchi decided to rat, the first person that he threw under the bus was DiCarlo. DiCarlo had absolutely nothing to do with these charges. He wasn't arrested for the drug trafficking that Patty Uchi was wrapped up in, but... Patty Uchi knew DiCarlo as the ringleader of the Buffalo Mafia, and he was willing to testify to that knowledge to get himself out of jail. Tadaro reached out to Patty Uchi when he heard that he was testifying, and he pretty much was like, listen, like, come to Cleveland, they're gonna kill you. You're gonna die. But Patty Uchi is like, nah, I'm fine, man. Like, I'm totally cool. I'm not scared of these guys. These guys ain't shit. I'm not going anywhere. In December of 1923, he took the stand against DiCarlo. On January 1st, 1924, DiCarlo and fellow mafioso Peter Galello attacked and attempted to kill Patiucci. They shot him a few times, but he didn't die, and they were charged on February 4th, 1924 with witness intimidation and attempted kidnapping of a witness with force of arms. Patiucci testified against DiCarlo further on February 5th. During the trial, Patitucci's wife, May, was called to the stand, and she directly contradicted her husband's testimony. Even with that snafu, though, DiCarlo and Galello were found guilty, and they were each sentenced to six years in prison. Patitucci had introduced Tadaro to DiCarlo at one point before the testimony began, so, like, they know each other. Patitucci had risen through the ranks, and by 1923, he had become a pretty powerful figure in the Buffalo crime family because of his success in buying and selling narcotics. He had a whole bunch of cops from the Buffalo Police Department on his payroll, and when he started testifying against DiCarlo, he also started testifying against the police corruption that was going on within the police force, with the police accepting his payments to not arrest him for drug smuggling. So now it's 1924, and Patitucci has testified against DiCarlo and Sylvester Camerano on February 5th, and for the remainder of February, he just sat around and brewed. His wife had contradicted him on the stand, so their relationship isn't doing too well. He had testified against the Mafia, the only family that he ever had and he had built for himself, so... Obviously, now every Mafia member hates him. Him and his wife fought constantly, and now everything is just falling apart for poor, poor Patitucci. On March 1st, he telegrams Tadaro freaking out and tells him he has to come to Buffalo time now. Emergency. Get here now. When Tadaro gets there, the first thing that he's faced with on March 10th is Patitucci trying to unalive his wife. He's holding a pew-pew to her head and saying that he is going to unalive her. Tadaro is just like, what the hell did I just walk in on? <laughs> I run a mafia all day in Cleveland, and I ain't never stumbled on some crazy shit like this. So he talks Patatucci down. He's like, bro, you don't, you don't need to do that. Just chill, like chill. It'll be okay. So Patatucci puts down the pew pew. He turns around. And he grabs some bichloride of mercury and swallows it in an attempt to take his own life. Tadaro gets him to the hospital just in time, and he stays alive. Tadaro comes to visit him in the hospital again on March 31st, 
at which time Patatucci whispers in his ear that there's a notebook in his mother's house and he needs to go get it and bring it to the authorities after he dies. So Todaro goes to his aunt's house, he gets this book, and he brings it to Cleveland with him and he stores it at the grocery store that he owns with Big Joe Leonardo. Shortly after this trip, Patatucci succumbs to the poison that he drank and he dies. Todaro does what Patatucci had asked him to do, and he brings the notebook to the authorities. This notebook contains Patatucci's retraction of his testimony against DiCarlo. He pretty much writes that everything that he said was a lie. None of it is true. He was just trying to get out of jail time. DiCarlo is innocent. The police get a handwriting expert in there, and they prove that this is Patatucci's signature at the bottom of the page. The DA, having been given all of this information, ignores it. He doesn't just ignore it, he just refuses to acknowledge it. He tells of the plans that he believes Patatucci had to flee the state, make his confession publicly, and know he wouldn't be extradited to serve the remainder of his sentence. His death did the same thing, so they know that DiCarlo is innocent of these charges that Patatucci brought against him, but they're like, meh, whatever, we already have him in jail, he's a criminal, and we're not letting him out. Screw that, screw you, he's staying where he is. Now, while DiCarlo is in jail, he's going through it. The Ku Klux Klan decided to terrorize the auto rest and all the other drinking establishments in the area. I don't even know why. They just, like, maybe because they allowed other people to drink there, they weren't, like, not allowing, you know, races to mix. So they just destroyed this place all the time, and DiCarlo's sitting in prison and can't do anything about it. On November 29th, 1924, DiCarlo married Salvatore Pieri, and he does this because he's he's confident. He's like, all right, my, my appeal is going to be successful. I am going to get out of jail. I should never have been in here in the first place. They know it. I know it. They're going to let me out. But he didn't bank on them ignoring this freaking letter, and his appeal is rejected. And on April 15th, 1925, he is jailed. On November 11th, 1923, a nightclub owner and his brother fatally shot a prohibition agent, George H. Stewart. Authorities believe that drug dealers are planning to kill law enforcement officials, and, like, it's on site. After rejecting a bribe offer from a liquor smuggler, Pascal Curon, there's a custom agent, Orville Priuster. This man named Pascal Curon, he comes to him and he tries to bribe him from his liquor smuggling, just like, hey, I'll pay you, don't arrest me. And Orville, the inspector, he's like, no, I, I don't want that. Like, if I catch you, I'm going to arrest you. So when he rejects that offer, he dies in a car explosion. This pissed off a lot of people in the neighborhood, and it prompted law enforcement to take a lot more action against bootleggers. On April 30th, 1923, Caligaro de Rosa was shot and killed only 150 yards from the police station. For three weeks, John Gambino was detained as a suspect in this killing. Gambino was freed because there was no proof against him on the de Rosa hit. Nothing. But he was jailed for three weeks. So there was something, but they had to let him go. On November 26, 1923, Frank Genovese was killed near Dante Place in Erie Street. 
Gambino was once again arrested on suspicion of murder and held. On March 5th, 1925, the gambler John Manestri was shot and killed behind police headquarters. Seems like this is like a hot spot to kill people is right near the freaking police headquarters. Why not though? Because no one was detained for this killing either. Joseph LaPiglia was fatally shot later that month. Again, nobody was arrested. So it's really looking like Police just do not care about all these gangland killings. They're looking at it like, whatever, let the dirtbags kill each other off, does not matter. As long as they leave the civilians alone and they leave the police alone, we won't bother them. We don't care. Let their bodies stack up. Maybe they'll kill all of each other off and we won't have to deal with them anymore. Gambino, a suspect in the murders of DeRosa and Genovese, was assassinated on July 13th, 1925, presumably to exact revenge for killing DeRosa and Genovese. Gambino was killed with eight bullets when he was walking down Lower Terrace Road near Church Street. The killers got into a car and sped off, and the police said that they chased him down, but they have no leads. In other words, we do not care. That guy was a dirtbag. We're happy he's dead. They go on to say that Gambino was killed due to a gambler's feud. It's mentioned that he was held by police on two occasions on two previous killings, but that nothing could be proven against him, so he was set free. Even though they say that he was killed over a gambler's feud, they do mention that his death is believed to have been made in reprisal for the killings that he was thought to have something to do with with Genovese and DeRosa, who were well-known Buffalo gamblers. Even though a lot of people saw this crime happen, police say that they were handicapped by the refusal of several Italians who witnessed the shooting to give any kind of description on the killers. Several witnesses were questioned by police and they got absolutely nothing. And they didn't expect to get anything. They weren't surprised. Honestly, they did not care. They didn't care. He was dead. He was a criminal. They didn't care that he was dead. They didn't care that they didn't find anybody to arrest. It just was what it was. Giuseppe Di Benedito, Angelo Palmieri, and Philip Mazzara used their clout in the Sicilian community to help the family of a 12-year-old boy that had been killed. His name was Joseph Gervais. Gervais, an innocent little 12-year-old boy, had been molested and strangled to death by a drifter. So like some drifter was just coming through town and killed this poor innocent child. Talk about all these deaths back and forth, like whatever, but this one's really sad. The three men gathered donations from shopkeepers in Buffalo's Italian colony to pay for the young boy's funeral expenses. The family was very poor and they're emotionally devastated over the loss of this 12-year-old boy, and they didn't have the money to do a surprise funeral. They just didn't. These three friends gathered together, and they made sure that the family did not have to go bankrupt and still not be able to come up with anything for their son. That right there is why people rallied around the mafia. A lot of people nowadays, they wonder... Like, why? If these guys are such criminals, they're such dirtbags, why did anybody ever like them? Why are they revered and, you know, loved? And this is why. Because they can shoot each other all day long. But if somebody comes and messes with a person in the community like this, 
a drifter comes and kills a 12-year-old kid, like, not only are they going to take care of it, I promise you that drifter was found. I promise you that. But they're going to make sure the funeral expenses are taken care of. They're going to make sure that everybody knows that this happened so that it doesn't happen again. And they're going to help. Like, they're not just dirtbags. They're dirtbags, but they're not just dirtbags, and that's why they're revered within the communities that they're in. On May 14th, 1926, Prohibition agents raid Joseph Satile's Niagara Falls alcohol redistilling facility, and pretty much what they do there is they stop Satile's production of alcohol, and they force all the clients that were buying from him to go find new suppliers. When they do that... It kind of backfires on them. A number of local deaths of civilians in the area in July of 1926 were said to be caused by drinking wood alcohol. In western New York and Ontario, a whole shitload of bootleggers are detained, and that's why it kind of blew up in their faces, because like, yeah, they got this one guy off the street. They arrested Satile. Mm. Yay, bully for you. But then a whole bunch of civilians died because... Yeah, this guy's a dirtbag, and he might kill other dirtbags, but when you take this one dirtbag that has been the source of the alcohol, the trusted bootlegger in the area, you take him out, now there's a million other bootleggers, and you're not really going to be able to find out who it is when a whole bunch of people start dropping dead because there's a poisoned batch of alcohol. Giuseppe Morello and Ignazio Lupo former mafia bosses and convicted forgers, were freed from jail. Salvatore Di Aquila, the boss of bosses, turns around and sentences them and a few of their followers to death because they're like, you know what, your rivals are going to come here and they're going to kill people and then people are going to kill people in retaliation and it's going to start a war. Sorry to do this to you, dude, but you, you gotta go. You gotta go. You can't live. Giuseppe, Joe the boss, Masseria is making a lot of money right now in Lower Manhattan bootlegging. Like, a lot. A lot, a lot. This guy is raking in the freaking dough. And he emerges as a rival to D'Aquila. In a gang conflict, Silvio Taglagambe and Vincent Terranova are killed. Valente, who is Morello's cousin, is sent against Masseria after D'Aquila commutes his death sentence. So he's like, all right, fine. Maybe I was being mean, you don't have to die. Masseria narrowly escapes being killed. As we know from the big Joe Leonardo video, because we've all watched that here, Masseria is a freaking master escape artist, okay? Hundreds of attempts are made against this man's life. There is nothing anybody can do to kill him. Everybody tries. Like, they plan and plan and plan, and he always gets away. It's never successful. You can't kill this man. From Atlanta Federal Prison, Joseph DiCarlo was moved to the U.S. Industrial Reformatory in Chillicothe. His sister had been selling the auto rest while he had been in jail. The federal government is threatening to seize the roadhouse after it was pledged as collateral to secure DiCarlo's bail in exchange for the payment of the $5,000 fine. When DiCarlo was released from prison in Chillicothe in October of 1928, he returned to the rackets in western New York and he started the DiCarlo gang back up. Due to his unpaid fines, he spends a brief period of time behind bars. Joseph and Elise DiCarlo have a daughter, Vincenetta 
Sarah DiCarlo on December 19th, 1929. As boss of bosses, Masseria repeats many mistakes made by his predecessor. He interferes in the business of other crime families, he helps his allies succeed, and he actively works against other people across the nation. The former Masseria and D'Aquila factions are still at odds. When Masseria is asked to mediate a dispute in Chicago, he insults the city's mafia boss, Joseph Aiello, by siding with Alphonse Capone. Mafiosi from the Castella Merrick family, Gaspar Malazzo in Detroit, and Stefano Magadino in Buffalo opposed Masseria. They don't like this man. Salvatore Maranzano, a second mafioso from Castella Mare, rises to prominence in Brooklyn's Underworlds. On January 8th, 1929, Aiello assassinates Underworld diplomat Pascalino Lolardo by working with the non-Italian Northside Gang. Capone responds by killing seven residents of the Northside on February 14th. This killing would come to be known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I seriously have to redo my Capone episode because Capone lived a crazy life and I did an episode and it has all the information in there, but like my camera wasn't great and I wasn't really that great at doing research. So like, don't go watch that episode, but I have to redo it again. Like I'm, I'm going to redo it. It was one of my first like four and I said I was going to redo my first four. I redid my first two, but I got to redo that one. I have to, I'm going to do that one day. I promise. In Buffalo, liberal forces are advancing against the Mafia establishment. Giuseppe Di Benedito, the successor to Mazzara, is killed on February 27, 1929. In retaliation for the murder of Joseph Leonardo, Angelo Leonardo and his cousin Dominic Sosperato killed Cleveland Mafia boss Salvatore Todaro in June. Initial life sentences are given to Leonardo and Sosperato, but they were exonerated at the second trial after they won their appeal. Their mother was also tried and found not guilty because the two boys were in her back seat when they shot and killed Tadaro. I'm telling you guys, if you aren't busy and you're looking for like shows to watch, you know, you got, you're working and you have like eight hours and you need some background noise. Put the Leonardo episode on next. That is a crazy story. It's some shit right there, okay? Like, Leonardo, that's a heavy one. <laughs> on April 15th, 1931, Masseria was killed during a lunch meeting at a restaurant in Coney Island by men that had been put in place by Lucky Luciano in a bid to end the Castella Marisi War and end the fighting and side with Salvatore Maranzano. In 1930, Joe Aleo and Sam DiCarlo are detained for the kidnapping of Fort Erie bootlegger William Scheisler. It's revealed that Joseph DiCarlo's bootlegger extortion scheme included the Scheisler kidnapping. In June of 1931, the DiCarlo gang is apprehended by police. In order to avoid prosecution, Joseph DiCarlo presents himself as the victim of a criminal death threat. Like, he's like, no, they were threatening me, okay? I didn't do anything wrong. They threatened me, and I retaliated, like, and they didn't even die. He's alive. Chill, bro. Go away. Nobody needs you here. An old immigration-related charge against Angelo Palmieri is discovered by law enforcement. Later that month, Palmieri's life in danger, he is attacked and beaten by rival underworld figures. Faulkner Vanderberg, a horse racing wire service collector, is killed by gunfire in Buffalo, New York. 
Authorities think that this killing took place during a robbery. In relation to that killing, Joseph DiCarlo is being questioned. Joseph DiCarlo was questioned about that murder, and because he was brought in for questioning, he is losing his ever-loving freaking mind about how present in his life law enforcement is. He's like, this is harassment. I am constantly being brought in on these charges that they have no proof. I'm over it. I'm gonna sue. Like, this man is pissed. He's at his breaking point. He's done. DiCarlo is accused of making a false voter registration. And that is a problem. Because what that does is it brings up questions about his own citizenship. Like, was he born here in America? Is he a citizen? Do we know that? Austin Roche, the police commissioner, questioned DiCarlo's connections even more and designates him as Buffalo's public enemy number one at the beginning of 1932. A list of Buffalo's public enemies by Roche includes 13 additional names, many of who are in the DiCarlo gang. DiCarlo is subject to a deportation attempt, so, like, they're just trying to get rid of this man. They're so tired of him. They hate him. They just want him gone. So they're like, maybe we can get rid of him. Maybe we can put him in Italy. You know, I know it says that he was born here, but maybe, maybe he wasn't. Maybe we could put him on a boat and land him in Italy. But they do the research, and he was born here. Nah. And the accusation of improper voter registration is dropped. The Pirello family's influence in Cleveland's underworld is eliminated by the deaths of Rosario and Raimondo Pirello. Again, this is something that was gone over in the Big Joe episode I, I talked about, like, all episode. Out of the seven Pirello brothers, at this point, only three are still alive. Sam DiCarlo is found guilty of interstate transportation of a stolen car in the spring of 1932. He's detained in New York City in connection with the murder of Pittsburgh Mafia boss John Bazzano while he's out on bail pending an appeal. Paul Palmieri's companion is also detained. In Buffalo, Joseph DiCarlo runs slot machines in an effort to control the market. After DiCarlo's mentor Angelo Palmieri passed away in December of 1932, DiCarlo survives what appears to be an assassination attempt against him. Like, this poor man, man. Everybody just keeps dying on him. I feel like he's like me. Like, bro, I've had way too many people die, okay? <laughs> way too many people die. Like, it's sad. It's, it's, it's really, like, fucking tragic to look at my life as a whole. And I feel like that's what's going on here. Like, this poor guy, everybody he's ever loved is dying. And then they try to kill him. And then they try to throw him in jail for it. Sarah DiCarlo, Joseph's sister. I don't know why we're calling her Sarah. Her name is Rosaria, but we're calling her Sarah now. She marries Cassandro Bonacera, a member of the Perfacci family, and he's a soldier in the Perfacci family in New York. Police Commissioner Roach is replaced after the election of a new city administration, and his list of common enemies is removed. Gangsters of all facets scramble to establish new businesses after prohibition is repealed and now they can't run illegal alcohol anymore. In Buffalo, rival companies engage in what comes to be known as the slot wars in an effort to monopolize the slot machine market. At this time in New York, Frank Costello is leading the world on slot machines and in 1934, Fiorello H. LaGuardia's war against slot machines kicks it up a notch when he takes place in a ceremonial dumping of all illegal slot machines he found and busted up. 
He stood on top of a pile of wrecked slot machines right before he started chucking them into the river on live TV. Like, it was wild. It was a direct shot at Frank Costello. And that's what made Frank Costello go over to New Orleans and start building there and Carlo Marcello. Joseph DiCarlo was among the first people in the area to be detained in June of 1935 as a result of a new law that forbade people with criminal records from associating with one another. DiCarlo, Sam Pieri, John Tronalone, and Anthony Perna were the first four people found guilty under the new law. It's almost like the new law was written about them, and then as soon as the police were able to use it to take them down, they pounced. So, like, they were like, you know what? These guys just keep getting arrested and then chilling with each other. Like, that's not okay. There should be a law against that. You know what? Let's write that law. So then they go and they write that law, and it becomes a law, and they're like, yes, let's go get them! And they go and get them. (laughs) In September of 1936, DiCarlo and Tronalone are accused of assaulting Roman Kroll after Kroll refused to pay DiCarlo a tax in his bookmaking business. DiCarlo and Tronalone finally stood trial in the spring of 1937 after a lot of delays. Kroll changed his story while he was testifying, and a juror was the target of a phone threat that led to a mistrial. They did a whole new trial, and in the subsequent trial, the jury exonerated DiCarlo and Tronalone. So take that, coppers. I don't like that shit, okay? I'm sorry. I'm just gonna say that. I don't like that. Like, oh, you have a problem with them chilling with other people that are criminals, so you're gonna go write a law and then arrest them? Like, screw you. I don't like that shit. Days after being exonerated, Tronalone and William Miller are detained again for accepting wagers on horse races. Tronalone, who was thought to run a betting shop for DiCarlo, enters a guilty plea and is given a month in the county jail. So he's just like, whatever, it's a month, I'll eat it. The Magadino crime family and the DiCarlo gang just continue to tax bookmakers. The home of Magadino's sister, Archangela, and her family is bombed as retaliation by bookmakers in Bativa. After Archangela is killed, Magadino is out for blood. He wants he wants revenge. Frank Latempo, a bookmaker in Batavia, is killed one month after the bombing. A car bomb leaves Lo Tiempo's brother with serious injuries. DiCarlo's animosity towards the district attorney, Leo Haggerty, was met with increased law enforcement scrutiny of DiCarlo, his networks, and his employees. So, like, he's running around and he's just like, this is bullshit, you won't leave me alone, and the cops are like, oh, yeah, he wants to talk shit? Go harder. Just just keep arresting him. The monopoly of DiCarlo in the cigarette vending machine industry was contested. You're not allowed to have a monopoly. We know that. DiCarlo is given a year in county jail after being found guilty of using coercion against competitors. John Barbera, a former DiCarlo aide, is killed after trying to take over DiCarlo's rackets. That is the same Joe Barbera that hosted the Appalachian meeting. Haggerty discovered that there was a partnership between the DiCarlo gang and the local police. So, like, as much as they're harassing the shit out of him, like, I think... He finally broke and was like, all right, guys, what do I got to do? What, how much do I have to pay you to make you stop bugging me? 
Like, I will, I will pay anything. What do you want? You want 10 grand a month? I will give it to you. Just leave me alone. And then that gets found out by Haggerty. DiCarlo is severely assaulted after being released from prison after he tried to persuade a bar owner to take down a rival's cigarette machine. In relation to vending machines and jukeboxes, DiCarlo is also charged with conspiracy and extortion. And then, all of a sudden, nobody can find DiCarlo. He just goes missing. He vanishes. A Buffalo police captain entered a guilty plea for taking in an extortion plot. DiCarlo is discovered and charged after a nine-month stint underground. DiCarlo is given a year in county jail after entering a guilty plea to one conspiracy count. According to reports, he gets pretty special and preferential treatment there in the county jail. DiCarlo is accused of prior Fugitive Act violations after being freed, but doesn't matter. He's not charged with the crime. They're accusing him. They're trying to arrest him and everything, but they can't do shit. In the town of Amherst, a gambler who had recently slapped Magadino is discovered shot to death and floating in the barge canal. And the cops are like, yep, it was those mafia guys. Let's go. Let's go. Just put extra eyes on them. We know it was them. Take them down, motherfuckers. DiCarlo is arrested after making bets. Edward Poshpishal, a zealous opponent of gambling, presents evidence against the DiCarlo operation and its the police department allies. Poshpishal? His body is later discovered in a snowbank close to the Buffalo Harbor, frozen, battered, and shot. There is a police truncheon nearby, so, like, I don't know what happened there. Could have been anything. It probably had nothing to do with any of these guys, because, like, the police... They're not criminals. They would never do anything illegal, okay? And DiCarlo, you know, he's he's not gonna he's not gonna do anything about the fact that somebody's like you know just attacking him and trying to get him put in jail because he's a gambler. I don't, I don't know what could have happened. DiCarlo was implicated in Willie the Whale Castellani's demise. Police Captain Thomas O'Neill, DiCarlo, and Tronalone are found guilty of conspiring to neglect their duties. A gambling conspiracy conviction was also given to DiCarlo and Tronalone. On top of that, the charges of assault, coercion, intimidating a witness, and violation of federal narcotics laws are stacked on top of that. On appeal, O'Neill's conviction was overturned. Tronalone and DiCarlo are now both serving an 18-month sentence. DiCarlo and Tronalone's sentences were reduced as a result of O'Neill's successful appeal. DiCarlo decides that, like, you know what? I'm done. I've been here too long. I have outstayed my welcome. Police aren't going to leave me alone. I finally made a, you know, deal with them, and then they went back on it. I'm done. I'm out of here. And he leaves Buffalo. The Cleveland Mafia grants permission to DiCarlo, his brother Sam, Tronalone, Sam, and Joe Pieri to relocate their gambling operations to Youngstown, Ohio. The arrival of Buffalo gangsters and their bookmaking and policy ring in Youngstown, Ohio is such a big deal that the local minister literally goes to the logbooks and writes it in the logbooks that these guys arrived and like the day that they arrived the weather conditions on the day that they arrived like this was some serious shit a DiCarlo run casino outside of Youngstown is robbed by thieves Sam Monacino who is allegedly connected to the robbery is fatally shot in front of his house Vincenetta DiCarlo DiCarlo's daughter a singer 
she gets engaged to Vic Damone. DiCarlo makes an attempt to throw Damone out of a hotel window when he broke off his engagement with his daughter. To solve the issue, a mafia sit-down is held in New York City, and Frank Costello is the host. Around Youngstown, casinos like the Green Village and the Jungle Inn start to appear. Local sheriffs appear to be securing the operations. The Farrah brothers and the Cleveland mafia leaders controlled the Jungle Inn, which was shut down by state agencies. DiCarlo and Sam Pieri were involved in the 1949 murder and disappearance of Patsy Quigliano, a gambler from Niagara Falls. In Miami Beach, Florida, DiCarlo joined a group of mafiosi that were setting up rackets there in Miami Beach. In his testimony before a Senate Commerce Subcommittee, Youngstown Police Chief Allen discusses the interstate distribution of gambling information. The new Kefauver Committee targets wire servicing for gambling. Kefauver Committee witnesses mentioned DiCarlo's involvement in organizing gambling in the Miami area. When brought before the committee, DiCarlo was unhelpful denying any knowledge and forgetting certain facts when refusing to provide others. A charge of contempt of Congress is brought against DiCarlo. The early friendship between Mangano and the DiCarlo family in Buffalo was brought to mind by the discovery of Philip Mangano's body in Brooklyn in 1951. Willie Moretti, a former mafioso from Buffalo, is killed in New Jersey. I spoke a little bit about Willie Moretti in the Sam DiCavacante video, He's the one that they talked about how wrong it was that they killed him in Cliffside Park, New Jersey restaurant and disgraced him and said that it left a bad taste about the mafia. DiCarlo moved permanently to the Miami region. In Miami Beach, Sam DiCarlo and Joe Tronalone are detained for running a lottery. Charges are also brought against Joseph DiCarlo for maintaining a bookkeeping firm. In 1955, Vincenetta DiCarlo wed John Johnson. That's a very original name. A lavish reception hosted by Joseph DiCarlo is estimated to have cost $35,000 to throw. A $35,000 wedding. Like, yeah, that seems like no big deal, right? No big deal. People drop that on a wedding daily. Like, that happens every day now. It is a lot, though, when you consider that $35,000 in 1955 is equal to $388,000 $801. It is a lot, though, when you consider that $35,000 in 1955 is equal to $388,801 in 2022. So he threw his daughter a $389,000 wedding. Holy moly. DiCarlo is observed by federal authorities who discover that he owes money for a previous federal fine. Bills for the wedding reception were delivered to the New York gangster trigger Mike Coppola. DiCarlo is forced to pay the fine in installments, claiming that he's poor, and he finally completed the payments 33 years after the fine was initially levied. According to the news, Stefano Magadino disapproved of Joseph Bonanno's encroachments into what's considered to be, like, Magadino-protected territory in Canada. Because we know that Carmine Galante was sent to Canada to do the French connection in service of the Bonanno family. So Stefano Magadino, he already had people in place in Canada. And Bonanno just kind of sent Galante and was like, yep, now this is mine. So according to the news, he doesn't really approve of that. However, 
Stefano Magadino and Joseph Bonanno are cousins. They've grown up together. They are thick as thieves, and they love each other. So I say take what you see with a grain of salt, because I think if someone had a problem with it, something would have gotten done about it. Albert Anastasia tried to set up gambling networks in Havana, and he communicates with the Genovese Lieutenant Anthony Carfano and the Falcone brothers in Utica. In October of 1957, Albert Anastasia was fatally shot while sitting in a barber's chair in one of the most tragic slayings of all time. I will, you know, it happened like a hundred years ago, but I still think it might be one of the saddest things that ever happened in the history of ever. That poor man just getting shot down and like attacking a mirror. Ugh, I hate it. Albert Anastasia is another one. I have to redo the episode because it was one of my first and he deserves a lot better than what I was able to give him in one of my first four episodes. So Al Capone and Albert Anastasia, new episodes coming soon. Definitely keep an eye out for those. Now, earlier in the episode, I said something about Joseph Barbera, who hosted the Appalachian New York and he was killed. That is not the case because Joseph Barbera right here is about to host the Appalachian meeting. So it must have been his father because it was definitely Joseph Barbera, but it must have been his father who got killed because he went against somebody else, whatever. Um, but yeah, so I guess, you know, oops. At Joe Barbera's house in Appalachian, New York, the New York State Police, um, they're keeping an eye on the criminal figures that are coming around. And now if you listen to history's version of what happened, you know, they're just like hanging out. And then all of a sudden they see a bunch of like really fancy Cadillacs come into town and they're like, oh, these must be gangsters. And they raid it, you know. That's not true. That's not what really happened. There was other countries that had wiretaps on all of these people. They were already watching them, and everybody knew that this meeting was going on long before it actually took place. So, you know, everybody was well prepared for this meeting, and it was always going to be busted up, and it was always going to be raided. But if you look at history, they'll say, oh, well, the cops noticed a bunch of Cadillacs. No, that's not what happens. So anyways, the big head honchos of the mafia, like I'm talking, there's like a hundred something of them there. And every single person that's important in the mafia is at this Appalachian meeting. When police raided the meeting, they were able to gather dozens of them. I think like half of them got caught. And then even the ones that didn't get caught got caught later. Like, I'm pretty sure that Joseph Bonanno didn't get arrested at the Appalachian meeting, but it was, like, proven that he was there. They got their hands on his driver's license through another person, something like that, something weird. But he did go to jail for it. The Appalachian meetings, it did a lot. It did a lot within the mafia, and it did a lot within the FBI and how they were handling the mafia. The FBI had always just kind of denied the existence of a widespread criminal conspiracy. They, they, what mafia, what, what underground co corporation are you talking about? There's no such thing as organized crime, you know, like they just kind of acted like it was a scary bedtime story that nobody believed. And after the Appalachian meetings, they had to acknowledge like, okay, yeah, this is something that is actually going on. After they had to acknowledge that to the public, now the law enforcement agents are out for blood. They're going after 
every single person that's ever had any kind of association with the mafia. John Montana, Stefano Magadino's underboss, who had been a pretty well-liked business person in Buffalo, he got hit pretty hard from being at the Appalachian meeting. The government puts together the McClellan Committee, and then the next step is a New York State investigation, and a whole bunch of people ended up going to jail after the McClellan Committee. While all of this is going on, there is underworld punishment that must be meted. It's imposed on a local burglary ring that's going on, and it's like operating independently of the Magadino Mafia, which we know is not okay. If there's any criminal enterprises going on in the area that the Mafia is going on, either they're part of the Mafia, they're paying the Mafia, or they're not gonna be committing crimes anymore. And this burglary ring, they weren't paying the Mafia and they weren't part of the Mafia. Brothers Frank and Fred Aquino were discovered no longer alive. Fred had passed away from sulfuric acid exposure, which is just a horrific way to go, and Frank from a gunshot wound to the heart. Daniel Sansonisi, who is a mafia veteran, he's been in the mafia forever, he is allegedly connected to the Aquino killings. Arthur DeLuca, a friend of Aquino's, he is discovered no longer alive from strangulation. Richard Battaglia is the next to be discovered. He's also an associate of Aquino, and he was shot while he was driving. So they just took out this entire burglary ring. They pretty much were like, oh yeah, you don't want to pay us? Okay, cool, watch this. Attendees at the Appalachian meetings are charged with a plot to thwart the justice system in 27 cases. 21 of them are in court. Out of those 21, 20 were found guilty and given prison sentences. Most of the prison sentences that were meted out after the McClellan Committee, they were overturned on appeals or somehow afterwards. They were all overturned. But I'm pretty sure that Frank Costello spent like five years in and out of jail stemming from these charges. Without seeking advice from the local police, the New York State Police raid the gambling establishments and they detained 50 people including Stephen Canarozo. Police start looking into the mafia's involvement in professional boxing, and one of the first people that they start looking into in this investigation is none other than Joseph DiCarlo. They go to Miami Beach, and they start raiding gambling joints in Miami Beach, Florida, and DiCarlo John Angersola, who is a Cleveland racketeer, and a few other suspects, they're all detained after these gambling raids. Nicholas Tyrone was fatally shot, and this is Buffalo's sixth gangland homicide that has gone unsolved since 1957. So again, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious all this time, the cops just don't care. They're, they're just, they're over it. They're, you know, do what you gotta do, take each other out. We don't got to deal with you then. Next, the bodies of Anthony Palestine and Vincent Santangelo were discovered. So they're just going to keep stacking up and stacking up. And these guys were killed with beating and strangulation. All of these guys have ties to burglary rings. They are not paying the local mafia. They're just doing their thing. And they can't 
be allowed to keep operating if they're not going to pay the price, pretty much like a tax to the mafia, to allow them to do criminal enterprises in the area. It's appearing pretty clear from the cops and everybody in the area that these people are being killed because they are an independent burglary ring and like the actual organized crime is coming down on them and letting them know and letting everybody know like, hey, if you're independent and you're not going to pay homage to us, you're not going to make it here. This is the time that Joseph Falacci enters a guilty plea for taking part in the mafia. Before being sentenced, he runs away and he heads straight for Buffalo. And briefly, he's hidden in Canada by Alberto Agucci. Valachi is persuaded to go back to New York by the upper management of the mafia. They're like, hey, listen, it's not even that big of a deal. Listen, you can make it up. You come back here, you say that you were lying, you say that everything that you said was a complete lie, and no harm, no foul, you know? Like, we're not gonna... We're not going to do anything bad to you. We're not going to hurt you. Just just come back. Because they want him. They don't want this man just being out where nobody has any idea. He's already taken the stand. When he comes back, he's given a 15-year prison sentence. Falachi is another one that I've spoken about countless times on this channel. But most of the time, I've talked about him because he's attributed with giving, giving the mafia the names that we know them now. He testified about who was leading each of New York's five families, and the people that were leading the New York five families at the time, they're the ones that came to be known as the name of these families, you know, the Genovese family, because Vito Genovese was the leader of one. The Gambino family, because Gambino was leading a family. So any when you hear those five names, the five names of the five families, that came from Valachi because he got up in court and he testified that these five guys were the leaders in the mafia. The police report that DiCarlo is now back in Youngstown while it is said to be the epicenter of a massive, massive upheaval in the underground world. So shit is going down in Youngstown right now. And Joseph DiCarlo, he's here for it. In Youngstown, a car bomb explosion claims the lives of Charles Cavallaro and his 11-year-old son. And Charles is a pretty close friend with DiCarlo. When that happens, Robert Kennedy, the U.S. Attorney General, he steps in and he requests an investigation into the violence that's going on in Youngstown because he's like, this is crazy. There is bodies dropping everywhere. Somebody needs to do something. We can't just keep ignoring it. Especially now that we have an 11-year-old, an 11-year-old boy getting taken out in this violence? Absolutely not. No. So he opens an investigation. And we all know that an investigation is the absolute worst thing that can happen to anybody that is active in criminal enterprises. So DiCarlo is like, yeah, screw this, I'm out, and he heads back to Buffalo, and he is in near financial ruin. Like, he is done. He's, he's gotten beat up by the world out there. He comes back to Buffalo, he rents rooms at the Westbrook Hotel, and he just pretty much spends his days and nights at the restaurant, like, chilling. He's just like, you know what, what am I gonna do? It, it can't get any worse. I'm just gonna sit here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not playing anymore. The Westbrook Hotel, they begin to plan his eviction from the hotel because he can't pay his bills. He's 
freaking poor. He's broke. So DiCarlo moves temporarily to New York City, and he stays with his brother-in-law, Cassandro Bonacera, who is a member of the Perfacci family, and he's just like, you know, just taking a little bit of time to regroup. He needs to recover right now, and that's what he's doing at Bonacera's house. Since DiCarlo left in 1946, the underworld in western New York, it changed a lot, and I don't think DiCarlo really realized how much it had changed while he was gone. Stefano Magadino had appointed Fred Randaccio, who had previously been a member of the DiCarlo gang, to the head of the mafia rackets in the city. He did that after there was a lot of issues going on in the city, and there's a lot of issues going on with the Buffalo lieutenants, and Magadino is, you know, DiCarlo's not here, what are you gonna do? So he took Randaccio and he put him in charge. When Sam Pieri, the in-law of DiCarlo, was released from prison in the spring of 1963. He has a lot more influence in the criminal underworld than probably even DiCarlo does. During his seven-year prison sentence in the Atlanta Federal Prison, he gets pretty tight with a lot of members from the Perfacci and Genovese families. And we all know that, you know, you could be the biggest and the baddest gangster, but if you're from anywhere but New York, you don't really matter as much. So when these guys go and they go to prison with gangsters from New York, it ups their standing in the underground world immediately. So now he comes out of jail and he is on a whole new level of power because he's backed by these New York City guys. Because of this, Magadino and Randaccio are viewing Pieri as pretty much like a threat to their leadership and their power. Joseph Falacci now begins working with federal authorities after he killed a fellow prisoner, so he's looking at the rest of his life in prison, and that's what makes him start working with, with authorities. And this man does not disappoint. He takes the stand, and he tells everything there is to tell. He tells about the countrywide mafia hierarchy. He talks about the initiation rites. He talks about burning the card in the palm of your hand. He talks about, you know, the mafia has to come. If you're sitting at your child's bed and they're dying and the mafia needs you, they're going to call you and you have to go. Like, so this man gave away secrets that nobody had ever known. And the mafia has been around forever since forever. Maybe not in America forever, but it's been around forever. It was the government of Sicily. So the fact that nobody had ever given these secrets, and now Joseph Balaji is screaming them from the rooftops in open court, it's a big deal. It gives the public a much more thorough glimpse into what is actually going on, because they've been being fed the fact, oh no, this isn't real, it's not true, it doesn't exist, and that's all they've ever heard. So now, all of a sudden, it's, no, this is some serious stuff. This is big time. And now they're hearing exactly what happens, how it happens, how much power, how much money, how much influence these people have, and it changes the game. Because Valachi has such strong ties to Buffalo, Magadino gets really worried that the FBI is going to be infiltrating his company. If you watched my Joseph Bonanno video, you know that I talked about the supposed kidnapping 
that took place. And afterwards, it was claimed that Stefano Magadino had kidnapped Joseph Bonanno and interfered with the Bonanno family affairs. Magadino, he refutes this, you know, he's like, no, that's not true. What it really was, was that Bonanno was set to go on trial. He didn't want to go on trial, but then when he, you know, wanted to show up a year or something later, he didn't want to just pop back up. So he was like, oh, I got kidnapped. It was crazy. You should have seen it. The DA, everybody keeps trying to get Magadino to come to court to testify because they're like, okay, Magadino kidnapped you. Let's get him in court and let's get him to testify to that because I don't believe you. But they can't get him to testify because Magadino is having a lot of health issues. And every time they subpoena him, he just goes to the hospital and the hospital's like, no, this man's not ready to testify. He can't leave a hospital bed. In the Bonanno family, this is the time when the entire family splits. And the Bonanno family up until now had been known as the only family that hadn't had any internal strife. It was like the strong, reliable family. And this is when things start going crazy and the Banana Wars start to pop off. I'm not going to retell. You know what? I'll insert a little part of my Bonanno video here. So stay tuned because I'm going to have that play right now. So according to Bonanno, according to, you know, everybody, this is how it went down. It's not how it went down, but when Bonanno wrote his book, that's how he said it went down. So, so now DiCarlo is back in Buffalo. And he is spending his days at a restaurant, just chilling, regrouping. In 1965, later in the year, after he had a separation, him and his wife reconcile. They only spend a few months together. Early in 1966, Elise DiCarlo passed away from a heart condition. The involvement of DiCarlo and Pieri in a Las Vegas gambling establishment is discovered by law enforcement, and now law enforcement is investigating and just causing DiCarlo yet another headache that this man does not need. Federal, state, and local authorities, they go and they search Panero's Lounge in Buffalo because there's a rumor going around that there is a bachelor party going on for Joseph Todaro Jr. in the basement. And the FBI, the state police, the local police, they're all just like, yes, let's do this. And they discover a dice game that's going on that Randaccio had funded. 36 men are detained, and DiCarlo, Randaccio, and many other influential mafia members are there, and they're all sitting in prison. Magadino is pissed. He is so mad that this dice game got broken up. He's pissed. In a raid of the homes of Buffalo mobsters in June of 1967, federal agents and local police sworn in as deputy U.S. Marshals arrested Federico Randaccio, Pascale Natarelli, Sam Pieri, Nicholas Rizzo, Stephen Chino, and Daniel Domino. These men are all wrapped up in three cases that are about a robbery conspiracy. Because of the increased level of violence that's been going on, a bunch of different U.S. agencies, they all formed together to make an organized crime strike force. Although it does not participate or send any of its own people to participate in the strike force, 
the FBI does grant access to all of its sources of intelligence, and they're like, listen, we're not going to take part in this, but anything you need, we got you. All of our intelligence, all of the investigations we've done, we'll give it all to you so that you can use it in whatever strike force stuff you have going on. After he was charged with armed robbery of Buffalo City Hall, Pascale Calabrese he decides that he's going to assist with investigations being conducted by the strike force. So Calabrese is now officially a rat, and he was a member of the mafia. So never a good thing when a member of your group turns and flips. Following his cooperation, the Megadino group, it starts looking for him and for his girlfriend. Like, these men are not playing. They're going for anything that will hurt him. He's placed in protective custody, of course, and his girlfriend and her kids are also placed into protective custody with him. There is threats made against agents within the strike force, and Calabrese is put into the witness protection program. Randaccio, Natarelli, Chino, and Domino... They all receive federal prison sentences because of Calabrese's testimony. Pieri is exonerated, though, so that's great. He spent a lot of time in jail already. Like, this man just got out. Let him breathe fresh air for a little bit. Jeez. So, since Natarelli and Randaccio are gone, Pieri and DiCarlo, they organize members of the previous DiCarlo gang and they seize control of Buffalo's gambling ring. So it's pretty easy for them to come in when everybody in power is gone right now. They also have the New York City Colombo family standing behind them. And Stefano Magadino, he's still pissed. His profits are severely declining, and he starts a series of very unpopular financial measures in November of 1968. He pretty much turns around and he lowers the amount of profit that his underlings are able to maintain to themselves. And he withholds customary cash bonuses at the end of the year. So usually at the end of the year, you know, there's some Christmas bonuses given out. People are able to get a lot of money in their hands. You know, if you're in the mafia, you usually have a decent amount of money. And because Magadino is so pissed... He's telling them, like, hey, I know you usually only have to kick up, let's say, 10%, but now you have to kick up 15%, and I'm not giving you a Christmas bonus. The Megadino crime family's leadership is connected by the FBI and Niagara Falls Police in a scheme where they're using the phones to place large sports bets. So that's not great, being connected to something like that, like wire fraud, like once you get into federal crimes like that, that's when it starts, the time you're about to spend in jail starts stacking up. In late November, there's a bunch of raids that go on, and Magadino, his son Peter, Benjamin Nicoletti, and a few other people are all taken into custody. When they search Peter Magadino's house, it turns up nearly $500,000 in cash being hidden behind a hidden door in his house. All the real estate that's owned by Magadino is seized in order to pay back an IRS tax lien. And the people within the family are pissed. They're like, okay, so you're telling me that we have to pay you 15% instead of 
we don't get Christmas bonuses. We don't get this. We don't get that. But you have $500,000 sitting behind a hidden door. It's a very toxic workplace environment right now. It is not good for the Buffalo crime family or for Magazino or anyone in that situation right now. It's looking bad. Because of how bad this is looking, there is a rebel underground group that starts to put itself together. Joseph Fino is the acting underboss. Sam Pieri is the acting boss. And Joseph DiCarlo is the consigliere. And that is all starting around July of 1969. The faction makes an effort to enlist the aid of others in the area so that they can get Magadino dismissed and they can kind of take the place to be the official group in the area instead of Magadino because of all the stuff that's been going on. Nobody's happy with Magadino. And they're pretty much like, look, we're a rebel group, but we want to be the legit mafia in the area. So they start taking steps to make that happen with the mafia's national commission. But people in the commission, they are not having it. Magadino is dying. He's very sick. And they're not willing to formally recognize Pieri as the leader of Buffalo. They're giving Magadino the respect to be the official boss until he dies. The Rochester, New York-based Valenti Organization's Independence. So things, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big blow to this rebel group. So in order to try to stack his money up a little bit, DiCarlo... He heads for Florida. Him and Pieri go and they start working with Traficante and the Bonanno crime family. And they're just trying to all work together to get some gambling put in place in Florida and just get some sources of income so they can regroup. The labor union, Local 210 in Buffalo, is now being investigated by federal law enforcement. According to insiders, the Buffalo crime family controls the local union, so Local 210 is fully being controlled by the mafia. The body of Gino Albini, a close associate of Sam Pieri, was found after it was, there was a rumor that he had turned into a government informant, and his body was found in June of 1970. While Pieri is on trial for moving stolen property, the discovery of his friend's body is made and he takes it pretty hard. He's accused of trying to buy a jury member. So the case was ruled a mistrial. And when it was tried again in September, he was found guilty of bribery and of influencing the jury. He was given a five-year sentence to serve in a federal prison, and he had to report the next month. His replacement as head of the Buffalo family is Joseph Fino. This is the time that the FBI learns that DiCarlo still has a pretty significant power in the family. He is the acting consigliere, and he's, he's not just a has-been. Like, he's still calling the shots around here. And things just keep getting worse and worse for Local 210. There is construction delays, and the Buffalo Federal Building is being built, and there's all kinds of delays, and... There's all kinds of issues with this project, and it draws a lot of attention to the union because of their connection to organized crime. 
So what do they do to try to smooth that out? They hire John Camilleri to be the labor coordinator by the construction company. And it seems to work. It seems to solve the problems and make everybody feel a little better. But in June of 1971, the federal grand jury starts another investigation looking into the corruption of this union once again. Joseph Colombo the head of one of the New York City's five families and a very big supporter of the Buffalo family, travels to Buffalo in an effort to kind of set up his own little chapter there. He has the Italian-American Civil Rights League, and he wants to have a presence of this group in Buffalo. But when Joseph Colombo goes to give a speech at the second Italian-American Unity Day rally. He was instantly paralyzed after being shot, and seven years later, he died. So he never regained his ability to, you know, he he might as well have just died that day. When the authorities start going after Fino, they arrest his brother Nicholas and six other people in his crime family with gambling conspiracy, and they're going after him in federal court. After that happened, Victor Randaccio and DiCarlo, they start making efforts to get him fired as boss. They're like, yeah, this isn't working. Like, come on. At first, Roy Carlisi is opposing the action. He does not want Fino fired. But when he was arrested, again, mm, he did escape conviction this time in July of 1972. And then there's another trial into jury tampering on that trial. And... This is still Fino that's being tried again for jury tampering on that first trial. And then Sansonisi is accused of lying under oath at Fino's trial. Sansonisi is found guilty of lying under oath, but he is having cancer surgeries. He's really sick, so that reduces the amount of time that he has to spend in prison. But he's originally given a five-year prison sentence. He doesn't really serve that long, though. Like, it's really clear he's very sick, and he's released pretty quickly, and he died pretty quickly after being released. In Local 210, the criminal organizations, they kind of choose sides in a reform movement because something has to be done. Local 210 is just mangled in the press. It's very obvious that organized crime has a strong foothold there, So they're trying to do anything they can to kind of rebuild the reputation. While Fran Giamore, Fino, and Carlisi, they support a reform movement led by Fino's son, Ronald. But DiCarlo and Pieri, they support Victor Randaccio's continued control of the union. In May of 1973, DiCarlo gives up $5,000 and he spends it on local 210 elections to put behind Randaccio. But regardless of the amount of money that he put into it, he lost when Ronald Fino's son's reform movement won the vote. In December of 1973, Sam Pieri is released from prison and he goes back home and he rallies immediately for a gang war to take back control of the union that he lost when he went to prison. On July 19th, 1974, Stefano Magadino passed away from a heart attack. Pieri is taken into custody, and that's because he's collaborating with well-known criminals while on parole. 
Because of this, he's sent back to the federal facility. While he's away, his brother Joseph Angelo Pieri, he's running the family. He is taking control of everything. He's just making sure everything runs smoothly. And he regains the control over Local 210. The Fino-Sansonisi alliance within the local union, it breaks down. You know, like they had control for a while now, but that breaks down at this point. And Victor Randaccio takes over again as the secretary treasurer. In August of 1976, Stefano Magadino's son, Peter, he passed away as well. When all of that happened, obviously, whenever a leader passes away, there's a huge power shift and everybody wants to step into those crime family openings to be the new boss. The factions that had been suppressed in the past come back to life as soon as Magadino dies. And there's a new struggle for control of Local 210. And while this is all happening, Roy Carlisi passes away. Sam Frangiamore and his nephew Joseph Tadaro Sr., they're very, very vocal in their opposition of San Pieri and Joseph DiCarlo's leadership. Carl Rizzo is a very, very, very well-known, very good friend of San Pieri and Joseph DiCarlo, and his partially decomposed remains were discovered in the trunk of an abandoned car in Buffalo. He had been killed by strangulation. When that happened, the FBI were able to discover his involvement in a criminal enterprise revolving around dental plans for union members. From 1969 to 1974, DiCarlo had been the acting consigliere to the Buffalo crime family. Even though the commission hadn't formally recognized his leadership, the Genovese family, they did. And the Genovese family, they were the representatives of the Buffalo family on the commission, so really, they're the only ones that matter. So, in all essence, he had been the consigliere for all that time. But he stepped down in late 1974 because the commission acknowledged a new regime. When he retired, he kind of just went and lived the rest of his life without being in the newspapers, without being in courtrooms. He just wanted to kind of be left alone and live the rest of his life in peace. On October 11th, 1980, Joseph DiCarlo passed away at 80 years old due to natural causes. The media reported that local public officials, as well as members of the underworld, had held DiCarlo in high regard throughout his entire life. Police anticipate that this is going to be a huge blow in the power of the Pieri group. It goes down even further in August of 1981 when Sam Pieri passed away from natural causes as well. By the fall of 1984, Joseph Todaro Sr. became the boss and he took control of the crime family. Supporters of the Pieri De Carlo faction are removed from key positions within Local 210. Even though he had been running Local 210 for years, Tadaro's placement as boss of the family, it did a lot. It put an end to the violence that had been going on for such a long time. It feels like this group had been mired in violence and war forever. And when Tadaro took over as boss, that kind of that kind of stopped. So that is all I have on this legend of a man. 
I hope that you're still here. If you're still here, like you're a real one, because this was a really long episode. I know that. So I appreciate you sticking it out. I'm, I really hope that you enjoyed the information that I shared. And I hope you enjoyed hanging out because I always enjoy hanging out with you. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things. And I'll see you next week. Bye.